Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we saw from today's uh, data that more people are working, they are getting higher wages, and presumably they are spending more. That is good for the uh, retail business and the global payments business. To give us a sense of how that's playing out in the retail space, we welcome Jeff Sloan, CEO of Global Payments. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So again, we had really strong job numbers today. I would think for your business, which traffics in the payments business, that's got to be a good backdrop for your business. Absolutely, it is. We actually reported very good third quarter numbers yesterday with revenues up 27%, margin up 80 basis points, earnings up 18% year over year. That follows on the heels of MasterCard and Visa essentially reporting the same thing. So uh, we already saw a very good same store sales lift here in the United States, about 3.5% same store sales growth in the third quarter for us, which is toward the high end. I think our record was about four. So right near the higher end, high end of that. And I think our numbers, as well as the unemployment numbers, mimic that. So I was looking at some of the uh, earnings and some of your comments afterwards, uh, in particular as it uh, related to new partnerships with Citigroup and the Canadian cooperative uh, Desjardins Group. And I'm wondering, uh, you said that the city relationship in particular is the first of many that I foresee us doing among money center banks. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and uh, which banks you're, you're looking to partner with? So one of the fastest growing things in our business is what we call omni-channel. It used to be called e-commerce. Now there's really no difference, which means you can buy something from Lululemon, for example, on your phone, sitting at a pool at Christmas, pay with your face or your thumb, have it delivered to your house. You don't like the size, you go return it, you order another one. So that kind of frictionless uh, commerce um, for the consumer and ease of use is where the market is going. This partnership with Citi partners us with one of the largest money uh, center banks in the world to provide those kinds of services to multinational corporates cross-border in both the physical and virtual world to allow their customers, their multinational customers, to provide those services to their consumers on a seamless basis. So the reason I said I think we'll see more of those is that's where the world is going. That's where the trend is. Zero friction for consumer commerce. And even the most, uh, the largest, most complicated FIs in the world, like Citi, I think have come to the realization that they can't do it on their own, that they need a payments uh, technology partner, and we're pleased to be that partner for Citi. So I know you recently closed a big acquisition, TSIS, $21 billion. Tell us about that deal and what's the strategy behind that deal? So in our business, it's really all about scale. So processing the uh, next transaction should be cheaper than the last transaction, and the transaction after that even less expensive than the current one. So um, our partnership with TSIS uh, takes our scale to $50 billion plus uh, transactions a year. It doubles the size of the company to about $50 billion today, a little bit over that. Uh, in market cap, it extends our geographic presence from 60 countries today to 100, comp uh, 100 countries as part of TSIS. And it gives us the largest e-commerce and omnichannel business in the world at a billion of revenue, the largest owned software business in the world at a billion of revenue in payments, um, and the largest integrated partnered software business in the world also at a billion dollars in payments. So we couldn't be more excited about um, our partnership with TSIS and where it's taking that company. And I think you saw that reflected 
in yesterday's trading and our outlook for uh, the rest of 19 and 20. So uh, when you came in this morning, I said, you know, thank you for being here. You said, I'm excited to be here, and I don't doubt it. I'm looking right now at your share price. Uh, it is up. The total return on your shares are up 66% year-to-date, uh, up more than 1% today, 2.2% yesterday. Go through the days. It's green. I'm trying to figure out who your biggest competitor is and what it will take to sustain this kind of growth. Sure. Well, it varies by geography because our business is really geographic-centric. I think we have the far, by far the broadest breadth geographically, multinationally of anybody. But here in the United States, uh, Fidelity, post uh, information systems, post their purchase of WorldPay, Fiserv, post their purchase of uh, First Data. Some of the domestic banks here in the United States, JP Morgan, who I think does a fantastic job in what they do, uh, Bank of America, which announced recently that they were recreating their own payments business away from one of our competitors. Those are our partners, but those are also our competitors. And then outside the United States, it really varies by uh, geography. So in the UK, for example, Barclays, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, both have big payment businesses. Our partner there is HSBC uh, in the United Kingdom. So 2019, it seemed to be a lot of M&A in your business. Give us a sense of how your business, your industry is structured right now. Do you think you're gonna see more M&A in 2020 and beyond? And specifically for your company, do you feel like you have the scale that you need? Uh, the answer, I think, is absolutely uh, to all those things. So the first thing I'd say is it's always been a consolidating business. Okay. Anytime you're in a scale uh, economics business, more scale is better, uh, less scale is worse. So that is what tends to drive the transactions, uh, number one. Number two, I would say, is we're not done yet at Global Payments. Our balance sheet is in a very healthy position. We're only about two and a half times levered today, as we announced yesterday coming out of the deal. So firmly investment grade. Once we have our sea legs under us, call it the spring of 20, as a managerial matter in terms of the integration with TSIS, well, I think we feel very good about uh, re-engaging um, uh, on the merger side. Uh, and uh, certainly um, our door is open today for additional uh, transactions. There's no reason we can't double yet again, as we did post the merger with uh, Heartland about four years ago. Just real quick here, I'm wondering what the barrier of entry is for some of these big financial institutions to create their own payments uh, system rather than partnering with you. Well, as I think you saw yesterday in the context of Desjardins in Canada and City here in the United States, even the largest, most complicated financial institutions in the world need the right access to market-leading technology. And what it's all about uh, is technology um, and related software in the, uh, in the payments business. That coupled with distribution, distinctive distribution or sales, is really what we sell. So the largest guys out there have concluded they don't yet have the scale or the time um, uh, to uh, get to market the way we are from a technology point of view. So there are, there are great barriers in uh, what we do. Now, everyone takes payments today, so I'm not suggesting that going to the dry cleaner, um, that there's a lot of barriers necessarily for all the small merchants, but in what we do, which is distinctive, which is what City and Desjardins uh, noted yesterday, then certainly I think those things are uh, uh, do have high barriers. Jeff Sloan, thank you so much for being with us and for correcting my pronunciation of Desjardins, which I absolutely butchered. Jeff Sloan, <laughs> Chief Executive Officer of Global Payments, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Well, you got to like the numbers out today, Bet much better than uh, expected jobs numbers, suggesting that the consumer remains very, very strong indeed. And that kind of dovetails with what we heard from the Federal Reserve yesterday. Uh, let's get a sense of uh, kind of where this all plays out or how this all plays out with Stephen Blitz, chief U.S. economist at TS Lombard. Uh, he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Let's uh, first just get your thoughts on kind of what 
you took away from the jobs number today? Well, I think in terms of the Fed's perspective that the economy is in a good place, it certainly underscores their point of view. I think you can still look through it and see the same problems, which is that the economy just continues to create these low-wage service sector uh, jobs, like in hospitals and or healthcare and in restaurants, which really doesn't move the needle very much in terms of earnings. So, and then when you look at average hourly, real average hourly earnings are nominal versus where the unemployment rate is, there's the disconnect that the Fed is really trying to push why they can't seem to get a higher wage growth for the given very low level of unemployment. There's also a disconnect when it comes to the manufacturing sector and when it comes to consumers. There's consumer strength, manufacturing weakness. We saw that today yet again. The sectors where there were job gains were the more service sectors, uh, and manufacturing took a hit. We saw that with the ISM number coming in weaker than expected, a recession in that particular sector. How long can these two industries totally diverge before one pulls the other in a, in a direction? Well, if one's gonna pull any, in any which way direction, it's gonna be manufacturing will pull the service sector. Um, but the, when you get back to the employment number itself, remember that that decline in manufacturing is for the most part the General Motors and the strike. So that- Absolutely, So yes. that 40,000 is gonna come back next month. But okay, so okay, but strip so, out the jobs. So that's why I'm focused on service sector. I'm not even thinking about the good side of the employment numbers today because we know that's going to flip back some way shape or form. Now, to your other point, manufacturing matters, okay? It is still the largest single industry in the United States in terms of its real value add to real GDP. It's at around 14%. Now, the service sector as a whole is larger than manufacturing, but the service sector is made up of a lot of different industries. The one we're sitting in right now, the one I work in, uh, healthcare. I mean, there's a lot of different restaurants. There's a lot of different industries there that have different sensitivities to the business cycle. So the spending thrown off by manufacturing does matter. Now, going forward, which is really what we're thinking about, the Fed's actions, in particular what it did on the balance sheet, and finally getting the, the funds rate below the two-year, and today the market's realizing maybe the Fed's not wrong, so we're seeing a re-steepening of the curve again. The low funding rates, the steepening of the curve, a little bit of a weaker dollar should aid manufacturing going forward, should aid the emerging markets, and that also should in turn aid manufacturing as well as export exporters in the United States. So um, when you look at that in terms of the good place, that's a forward dynamic that's positive as opposed to the one that's weighed on manufacturing looking backward. Are you of the opinion, based upon what you heard yesterday from uh, Chairman Powell, that there's one more rate cut and, and that might not, not even come until maybe mid next year? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any more rate cuts coming. Okay. I think I think he, he told you there has to be a material change in their view. So that means that, uh, and, and, the, and the risk and danger in that, okay, is that we're, we're obviously we're thinking about cuts instead of increases, right? So the material change and the risk in that phrase is that, oh, employment now is falling, which means by definition, they're going to be too late to cut. So this year, you could argue they were preemptive. In fact, that's how I characterized it last December, that they would be preemptive this year, and they were. Now, it's less a chance of them being quote-unquote preemptive because they're going to want a material change, and that's really the risk in terms of uh, their phrasing. What's the chance of recession in the next uh, 12 months? 
I think you have to put it at 50-50. Whoa, that's much higher than the uh, consensus. Well, okay. Uh, that doesn't bother me. All right, uh, good. You know, it, it's just that you're, you're, you're dancing so close to the edge here. Right, you have weak manufacturing. Wait, how, how can we say that we're dancing close to the edge? We're talking about how great the employment number is, the strength that you're seeing in services, and we're close to the edge? Well, we're close to the edge because the economy is only growing around one and a half, two percent 2%. So it's growing below trend, right? And let's face it, the multiple in the equity market is reflecting not just earnings or earnings expectations, but the liquidity that the Fed is putting into the system. And so the risk is that there's some unforeseen accident, which is obviously, a you know, I'm, I'm, all accidents are unforeseen, right? Uh, but it's an unforeseen accident that hits the equity market that the Fed can't get the equity market to bounce back up. Consumers, households are overinvested in equities. It's a whole long story, which I know we don't have time for here. But because of that, that will feed directly into consumption, directly into slowing the economy. And that's that's the risk. So we need a period of six to 12 months of earnings, of the, of the earnings supporting the multiples in the equity market more so than the Fed. And then things are on a more solid ground than that 50-50 drops way back down. On the number today, we had wage growth of 3%. That seems to be the range that this economy is in. And is that is that just as because of the types of jobs that are being added? You mentioned earlier, kind of you know service jobs, whether it's healthcare or fast food. Is that just kind of, it for this economy? Uh, it is for now, sure. I think that the idea was that at some point here, and then all this trade stuff between the US and China put the kibosh on it, is that at some point here, you need to get a growth in capital spending. Right? So we, we have an old cycle in terms of age, but not in terms of the cycle itself, Right, in terms of having that leverage spending to build capital. Once that gets going, wage growth will accelerate because you'll begin to increase employment in what are traditionally higher wage jobs. But at the moment, this is what the economy is going to deliver. Look, of the uh, 90 odd thousand of service sector jobs that were created, 50,000, I'm just talking top of my head around numbers, 50,000 was healthcare and, and restaurants. So that's not going to move the needle on, on wage growth. Stephen Blitz, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Stephen Blitz, uh, Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard. Uh, thank you for, for being here in the studios. Lots of economic data today, uh, today better than expected uh, jobs numbers. Uh, the ISM came out with their manufacturing numbers. To get the latest on that, we welcome Tim Fury, chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey at the Institute for Supply Management. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Give us what are your key takeaways from this ISM uh, manufacturing data today? Yeah, thanks, Paul. So the report for the month of October was uh, more positive than it was in September. I think although we are still in a contraction mode, the contraction rate has slowed. And maybe more importantly, uh, the new order number, which kind of sets the drumbeat, uh, uh, improved pretty substantially from the prior month, up 1.8 points. Still in a minor contraction mode, but uh, with indications in the right direction, supported by the fact that new export orders, they go into an expansion mode again, almost a nine, uh, actually 9.4 point change from the prior month. So those are the positives. On the, the not-so-positive on demand, our backlog continued to contract. 
at faster rates than it did last month, which is a little bit concerning. And the customer inventory account grew closer to the about right, which is not a positive thing for future output. So, but overall, I think the report was uh, much better than September, still contracting, but uh, we seem to have stabilized, supported by the fact that the new order number is close to 50. How much of a lagging number is this? And I see this in the context of the headline that we just got, the WTO approving $3.6 billion in Chinese trade sanctions on the U.S. Uh, that should, all things being equal, uh, slow some of the exports from the United States. How long would it take for that to get into the data? Yeah, that could impact our new export orders. The orders come in, they could be for immediate delivery or they could be for delivery three to four months out. So it's going to depend. Uh, you know, that, I don't know that that's a really big number anyway. So, uh, you know, I, w- I would think that our new export order, at least in the short term here, is going to stay about where it is. I don't know why it would drop unless there's an escalation in the trade issues. Uh, you know, I think the other, the other story here is that uh, we had a little bit of a shift in our industry sectors that were contributing to the PMI. It's no surprise that the transportation equipment sector actually contracted faster than it had the prior month, primarily because of the, uh, the, uh, the GM strike, and you know we have some uncertainties here around the max. But we actually had the chemical industry uh, go into a contraction mode, too, from a moderate expansion in the prior month. And we had the, the computer electronics industry sector go from a minor contraction in the prior month to an expansion. So we've got some shifting going, around, going on here in our top three industry sectors. The three of those together make up somewhere around 42, 43% of manufacturing GDP. Uh, I would expect transportation equipment to get better next month because we no longer have the strike. Uh, And I would hope that the chemical industry sector will rebound a bit. There's a lot of factors probably at play there. We have an advantage cost base, but we probably have a disadvantage here on counter tariffs as well as uh, the currency issues. So, Tim, this marks the uh, third consecutive month of the print below 50. When does this become a trend that might be worrisome to you and your economists? Well, I mean, this, this is in no way is it looking anything like 10 years ago. And the, and the reason is that uh, although we are contracting, you know, the 50 is a number, we're not contracting really strongly. Uh, you know, if we were in the low 40s, high 30s, then it would be uh, very concerning. But, I, you know, I think, you know, you're talking, remember, this is month to month. We start every month at a 50 point. So we're slightly off of last month, uh, not heavily off. Uh, slightly off, meaning you know even less than five percent. So, and I think now that we've kind of bounced a bit, we went to forty-nine point one in August, forty-seven point eight in September. Now at forty-eight point three, although we're up a half a point, you know, there's no reason to believe that uh, you know we can't get back to fifty in the short term here. Timothy Fiore, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Tim Fiore is chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey at the ISM. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.